Morning, New Hope family. Joining me on the platform are uh, Keith and Sandy Nelson. Some of you know Keith, uh, Dr. Nelson. He's the health director at MSU for student services. Got that right this time, right? Okay. Um, Keith and Sandy are joining me up here because Keith has been named a new elder here at New Hope, and we want to pray over him this morning. And he and his wife, Sandy, you get to see half of her, right? Eyes up. And we have um, um, uh, lost my train of thought. You have raised two daughters, yes. Kate and Maddie. You're looking at me like, I don't know what you're going to say. So. <laughs> so they've raised two daughters in this area, Kate and Maddie. Keith has been a medical practitioner for a, a long time in the Lansing area and more recently took on the role of health director at MSU. And back in June, we have six elders here at New Hope, uh, back in May actually, uh, began talking about adding an elder to the church and um, asked Keith over the course of the summer if he and Sandy would consider that. And they had conversations and talked about it. And then we have, um, uh, in October, I think, of this year, landed on the reality that Keith would become an elder. And so um, we're going to pray over him this morning. But before we do that, I want to read to you some instructions from the book of Titus. In Titus, Paul uh, wrote to a young man by the name of Titus who is leading a church on the island of Crete. And there's just a little paragraph here that gives specific requirements for what an elder is supposed to be like, what the um, New Testament definition of an elder is. And you hit it in verse 5 where it says qualifications for an elder. It says this, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely... And here's the requirements. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. In the first service, I clarified for them, well, I'll clarify for you, that word pugnacious means you're not punching out somebody's lights, okay? In other words, you have a good reputation for not being a brawler, and yet you're the opposite. You're a person who has high standards in the community, and you're viewed that way. Um, it was only a few years ago where somebody said to me, to be an elder at New Hope, do you have to be a medical doctor or something? Because <laughs> there's so many doctors that are, no, that's not the case. Um, you have to be a godly, godly man, right? And um, we've identified Keith as being a person who meets the, meets the qualifications for an elder. And so we submit him before you, and I want to pray over him and Sandy because it's a, it's a joint partnership relationship to do this kind of work. And you'll see him around. So if you get a chance to congratulate him, please do so. Keith serves here regularly as one of the drummers and also in the security team. Yep, and they've been here for 12 years years now. I said 10 years in the first service because I keep thinking we're a 10-year-old church. No, we're 14 years old. So somewhere I lost four years along the way. So Keith has been here and Sandy have been here a long time. I'm going to pray over them. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we lift up Keith and Sandy to you and specifically the responsibility that Keith has to walk um, in wisdom, that he would walk in the wisdom that doesn't come from man, but the wisdom that comes from you. 
So I pray, Father, specifically for the, the task, the responsibilities that are before him, that you would in, um, endow him with the power of the Holy Spirit, that the advice that he gives, the counsel that he gives to the church, the exhorting that he does would be representative of you, first and foremost, of your kingdom, and that you would use that to strengthen and equip your church. Father, we recognize this as a heavy responsibility, and so we lift it up before you asking that you would bless it and that you would use it for the sake of Jesus' name. He's, he's worthy of this, Father. He's worthy of us dedicating ourselves to these kind of service. So we pray for that. We pray for the, the use of Keith's life to be an elder at New Hope and that you would use it for your glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you.
If you have a Bible with you this morning, you could turn to Matthew chapter 25, whether you have it electronically or hard copy, you want to follow along. Um, You see a lot of the verses on the screen. If you're new to New Hope, you probably wouldn't be aware of that, but um, we have also a set of notes for you in the back, if that would help you follow along. Feel free to get up during the service and grab those if you like. They're behind that pillar back there. And those notes there, also you can download them on a QR code in the seat in front of you. There's a little code you can scan if that would help. You can get the notes that way. Um, before we jump into Matthew 25, though, I just want to paint this picture for you. In Isaiah chapter 6, we're told that Isaiah saw the living God. Isaiah is a prophet, Old Testament prophet, if you're not familiar with the Bible. And he records this in Isaiah 6. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he was the king of the nation, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. So he was caught up into heaven and he had this image, this vision that he saw. And he says, the train of his robe, meaning the trailer behind God's robe, it filled the temple. When we think of an earthly king and maybe a monarch wearing a robe, it it might go down to their ankles or maybe to the bottom of their steps. But Isaiah said this king was so majestic that the train of his robe filled the entire temple. And then he says, I looked and I, I saw seraphim flying above him, and they were crying out, holy, holy, holy. And we're told in the Bible it's antiphonal, and so as they said that, three more would say it, and it'd go back and forth, holy, 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 holy. And he said at the sound of their voices, not the sound of God's voice, but the sound of just the voices of the angel, there was a trembling, a earthquaking, if you will, in heaven. And he said the threshold and the foundations of heaven shook. And his next comment was, woe to me, I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among an unclean people, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. I'd like to take that image of God and translate it to this parable that we're looking at this morning in Matthew 25. Because although Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives as he delivers this And it's two days before his crucifixion. He's the same God that's in heaven. And God descends to earth and becomes man. And then we kill him. And he rises from the dead. And he ascends back to heaven. And when you think of God on earth telling us these parables that we've been looking at over the last year and a half, and we're down to the final two now, That's the image of the God who relays this information to us. So I would like to get that framework of God relating this information to us, and I'll bring you back to that image in just a few minutes. Before we jump in to Matthew 25, would you join me in prayer that God would shape our mind around that? Let's pray together. Father, I praise you and thank you for the reality that what we're about to look at is from you. These aren't man's words. These are your words. These are things that you wanted us to know. 
So I pray, God, that you would use this information, use what our eyes read on paper, what we see on screen, what we hold in our phones electronically. God, use these things to do surgery on our hearts. And where we're cold and calcitrant and we have allowed ourselves to become numb to you, God, I pray that you would begin thawing the ice. And where our hearts are already warm to you, God, use this to motivate us. And we approach this with the sincerity and with the intensity with which you delivered it to us. So God, we approach it in that light, asking, pleading, begging, that you would use the power of the Holy Spirit to reach down now and, and touch us through your word, which does heart surgery every time we read it. Do that now, Father. Do that in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. What you're about to look at requires a little background knowledge on first century culture because Jesus is about to describe a wedding scene. And unless you understand the first century wedding scene, a lot of this could scoot right on past you. The first century wedding was the climax socially for individuals on their social calendar, and I'm not talking about religious things, but on their social calendar, this is the thing they wanted to be part of. A first century Jewish wedding in the Middle East is the most celebrated event on the calendar. And essentially, everyone in the community is involved. Whether they're a participant or they're an invited guest, everybody's included. And because it's a time of enormous celebration in the community, everyone in the community knows that it's going to happen. There's no eloping in the first century. They know that this event is on the schedule, and they all prepare in advance. Now, in a Jewish marriage, there's four very distinct stages. We'll hit three of them this morning. The first stage is what's called the, the announcement stage or the intention stage, in which the groom announces who he would like to be married to. And the father of the bride and the father of the groom come together and they begin negotiating a contract, setting up the terms of the marriage covenant. After that period of time, the groom and the bride come together. And in some cases, the groom and bride have never met each other. But not in every case, because like in Mary and Joseph's case, they knew each other. But in some cases, they don't know each other. They just depend upon the fathers to make a selection. And then the groom and the bride come together and they begin exchanging vows over a cup of wine that's spread out before very close family friends and family members. And they communicate to each other what their vows are. That's the first stage. The second stage begins the betrothal period. And as a result of communicating their vows to each other, the, the bride and groom state their intentions. They declare their intentions before the close family and friends. But at this point in time, they do not begin living together. They separate for the betrothal period, which is a minimum of 12 months. And during this 12 months, the groom sets up housekeeping, if you will. He goes to establish a trade, a practice for himself, and he goes to prepare a place for his bride so that when it's built, he can come back and receive her unto himself. This is part of the imagery that Jesus is painting here. So that's the, that's the second stage, and it was taken so seriously that if a husband died during the betrothal period, even though they had never lived together, that bride would be considered a widow because on paper, legally, she's married to him. And that betrothal period lasted one year minimum, as I said, and, and usually at the end of 12 months, they would step into the third stage. At the end of the betrothal period, 
The third stage that begins involves the entire community where it was just very close friends and immediate family members earlier when they announced the vows, what involved the entire community was a massive celebration, which lasted for a minimum of seven days. A great feast was thrown in the community for everyone to come together. And it begins always in the same way. It begins with the groom coming to the home of the bride, to the father's house, and receiving the bride to himself. And at that point, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen join together and they escort the bride and groom through the streets of the city and they're announcing, it's time for the celebration. And they make it known to everyone in the community, it's time to gather, it's time to come together. The feast is here because the groom has arrived. Everybody understood this part of the culture. So as the attendants, as the bridesmaids and as the groomsmen parade through the streets announcing that the, the wedding feast is here, they always do it at one particular time of day. It's always done in the evening hours, after twilight. The, the waning light of day is gone, and so they need lights. They need torches to light the path. And as they use those lights and torches, it draws attention of the community. At the very end of the festivities... A close friend of the groom takes the hand of the groom and places it in the hand of the bride, and for the first time, they're left alone. The crowd begins to disperse, and it's just the groom and the bride, and they physically consummate the marriage, and they begin life together. It's this third stage here that Jesus captures as an image for this parable that you're about to look at. Matthew 25 and verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Uh, while you may not realize it, all of this study time that we spent in the last 14 months together since October of 2019, I guess that's a little longer than 14 months, looking at these parables have all led up to this one word. If you have your Bible open this morning, you might want to circle that one word, the word then. Then, he says, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. Why the word then? What, what is that leading up to? The, the, the then is referring to Jesus appearing in great power and great glory. As you look on the screen, you see one Greek word, and it's that word T-O-T-E. It's the word then that Jesus uses, meaning at the time of the future. When then? After the rapture of the church, after the great tribulation, after seven years of hell on earth, after Jesus splits the eastern sky, at the second coming, that's the then. And Jesus says, then the kingdom of heaven is comparable to preparation of a wedding of ten virgin bridesmaids who are attendants at a wedding. So he's using one word to illustrate this truth that he's been teaching on the Mount of Olives. He's been sitting on the hillside talking to the disciples, and he uses this to sum up the reality. Then he's driving home the point that he's coming again. And he's been reminding us over and over and over that people have to be ready because his coming is going to be shockingly unexpected. And once he arrives, there's no second chances. There's no more opportunity for salvation. It's gone forever. That's where he goes with this parable. Verse 2, five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flask along with their lamps. 
Now, let's, let me give you some details of interpretation of this particular parable. The virgins that he's using here in this description, the five foolish and the five prudent, all ten of them, they represent the church in the sense that they represent professed believers. And if I was ever going to use a passage where I would put quotes on either side of the word professed, it would be right here. People who say, people who claim with their mouth that they're actually Christian. So we're not talking about people who are outside the church, we're talking about participants, people who are in church functions. So they symbolize the church, in other words, people who profess Jesus is their Savior. And you realize that really quickly as you look at the parable and see that all ten of them go out to meet the groom. In other words, they're not people who are ignoring him, they're people who expect that they're going to be part of it. But you have to stop and ask yourself the question, are they all truly Christ followers, or are there posers involved here? Why is Jesus telling this just two days before He's crucified? Now, that has to do with the bridesmaids. Let me give you insight on the torches themselves, because they're a silent witness. They, they represent, there's a knowledge of His coming. They've got the equipment in, his hand, in their hands. They know that the betrothal period is over, and so they're ready. They've got the torches together, and they're going to gather for the feast of the kingdom. So on the screen again, you're going to see another Greek word, the word lampos or lampos. And when you think of the lamp that Jesus is describing, don't picture a little Aladdin's lamp, okay? I know that's the image that pops in your mind. Actually, the word lampos is a torch. So when you think of an archaeologist going into a cave, maybe in an older movie, you might think of someone with a long wooden stick and cloth wrapped around it very tightly that's been dipped in oil. That's what he's using the imagery here for. There's a very specific reason for it. These torches were used by these wedding attendants, and they were responsible for lighting a path. Here's the way that the word was used in the Bible. I'll show you another example, John 18.3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches, lampposts, and weapons. That's when they're going to arrest Jesus. It's the exact same word. Here's the way you understand this and Jesus using it. While lighting the way for the procession was important, what was equally important was as they're holding these torches in a very dark city because there's no streetlights, they're calling attention to the fact that the groom is here. The procession has underway, and as people are around the city, they can see the flaming torches. In this case, 10 groomsmen and 10 bridesmaids, 20 people carrying torches in their hand, lighting up the streets making their way towards the possession. That's the setting that Jesus is describing here. So it's absolutely crucial that each of the bridesmaids have a torch. They have a responsibility. They anticipate being involved. They want to be involved in the feast. So these 10 bridesmaids, they represent professed followers of Jesus who claim to love the thought of His arrival. So they've got an outward readiness they're expressing by their outward readiness with the things that they've gathered and that they've prepared that they're waiting for Him. And so according to Jesus, all ten of them appear identical. They've all been dressed for the wedding. They all have the equipment for the wedding. They're all waiting for the arrival of the groom. They all look the same. But Jesus says they're not all alike because they're not all prepared they're not prepared for the groom's arrival, and that's the point of the parable. So look with me on the screen, verse 2, it says, five were foolish and five were prudent. 
And the evidence that they're foolish is the fact that the foolish brought no oil with them, according to verse 3. What's he setting up here? What's the picture? They're carrying the torches, but in reality, they have nothing to burn their torches with, nothing that will help them to produce the light and the responsibility that goes with the light. It might help you as you assemble this in your mind to know that in various places in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the Holy uh, Holy Spirit is pictured by oil. It's a representation or a symbolism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the prudent, they have oil for their lamps. So they've got this outward statement of profession that they belong to the groom, that they're there for the groom's feast, and they've got it validated by this inward possession that they've got the oil. So we would say they have the oil of preparedness. In other words, they got ready by having the light of the saving grace of God. They've got the oil with them. But we've got five bridesmaids here who are foolish, and they're called foolish by God. The one who sits on the throne, the one who happens to be on the Mount of Olives talking to the disciples that are in front of him, but the same God whom Isaiah saw, He says they're foolish because they don't have what they need. I think we would all agree that a torch without any fuel is worthless because there's no flame. It's like a light bulb without electricity. It's pretty, it's glassy, it shines, but without the electricity, there's nothing. There's just darkness. Well, in the exact same way, a statement of belonging to Jesus without any true relationship whatsoever is worthless. That person's still in the darkness. Verse 5, now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. So we've got Jesus making a statement here about the delaying, and he's, he's talking about the reality that the, the groom's going to return, and the groom's going to come back, and it's going to catch people by surprise. It's going to be completely unexpected. There's, there's no delay whatsoever from God's perspective, but from our perspective, there's a great delay because so much time has passed from that starry night in Bethlehem to here we are in 2021, it seems like it's never going to happen. And so Jesus uses that term delayed here intentionally. But remember who he's making the statement to. He's got the 12 disciples right in front of him. And he's directing it to them, but he's directing it to us who are living in 2021. And especially he's directing it to those who are going to live to see the last days, who are going to live to see the tribulation period. Because there can be a temptation to believe that because things get so brutal as we've been exploring in the last days on planet Earth, there could be a temptation to think, he's not coming. And Jesus says, no, it's just delayed. It's not that he's not coming, it's delayed. So there's no suggestion here that sleep indicates laziness. We're not talking about somebody being spiritually irresponsible because the bridesmaids who are prudent, they even fall asleep themselves. It's just reminding us that not even faithful people will know when he's coming. He's just going to come. What sleep actually signifies here is the ordinary activities of life. You and I are not called to go climb a mountain and stare into space and just wait for Jesus to come pick us off the top of that mountain. We're called to get out there and be laborers in the field, to work. And when we're tired, we rest. And then we get up and do it again. And in the meantime, we're waiting for Jesus. This is just indicating the normal rhythm of life. All 10 of them sleep because all 10 of them are in the normal rhythm of life. We work, we rest, we wait for Jesus. 
Next verse, verse 6, but at midnight there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. I don't know about in your house, but at midnight, most people in my house are asleep. And midnight is not the hour when you're awake. Jesus uses this illustration specifically in the first century because they don't even have electricity at that time. People are in a deep sleep in the first century. But the bridesmaids know that the groom is coming soon. That's why they're there waiting with the bride. They're aware the engagement period is over, the betrothal is done because the signs are there. They know the groom is coming, and so they're there waiting. They're waiting with the bride. Well, in the same way, Jesus has been driving this point over and over over these last couple of weeks. People living at the end will have seen the signs in the sky. They're going to know the coming is imminent, but it's not until they see him explosively appear that it's fulfilled. Matthew 24, 30, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's the then that we were talking about. That's the decisive moment of history. The alert is sounded. He's here. Everybody, come meet him. And the bridesmaids are called, and it's time to join the groom. And in that moment, in that then, in the explosive moment when he arrives, they traumatically and hysterically recognize they are not prepared. They didn't know. Verse 7, then all the virgins, those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Every last one of them gets up. Every last one of them assumes that they're going to be involved in the great wedding feast which makes the next verse that much more tragic. Verse 8, The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. And you're reading shock, and you're reading panic, because in this moment, the foolish immediately realize their trauma. He's arrived! And they're unprepared. And it's not that they've been unaware it's that they've been unprepared. I would even go so far to say as unconcerned. The reality of human nature is that we know the things that we're supposed to do. We know what we're supposed to do physically. We know what we're supposed to do financially. It's not a lack of information. We know what we're supposed to do spiritually. Many people put off what they know to do. Their thinking is, there's plenty of time. I've got so much time. I don't need to act now. Have you ever had anybody say that to you in relation to Jesus? Yeah, I'm just going to wait until just before he comes. Good luck with that. I hope that's not your thinking. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. There isn't plenty of time. That indicates a person is really just very selfish and they just want to live life their way. See, in the illustration here, these individuals had plenty of opportunity and they have no excuse, and no excuse justifies it, so none is offered here. I promise you, when Jesus appears, many will frantically realize they lack any spiritual relationship whatsoever. That's why you find Paul writing such hard things to the New Testament church. I need to show you this passage in Corinthians. Maybe you've read it before and you haven't read it in light of this. 
2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? What would the test be? Can you see the evidence of the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you producing fruit? Do you long for God's Word? Do you long for His return? So many people come up to me after the first service saying, what does that test actually look like? If you're wondering, come talk to me after the service. I'd be honored to talk with you about that. Here's the problem. There's a willing self-deception that takes place, and it takes place within the church. Too many people believe that in an association with the form and the function and the people of the church, they, they equate that somehow to having a relationship with Jesus. And here's how it happens. It happens very slowly over a long period of time. Individuals who are raised in a Christian household assume, well, my parents are Christian, so I am. Or raised in a state that's Christian. Or raised in a nation. I'm an American, so obviously I'm Christian. And especially a problem in the area of the Bible Belt. My son serves on staff at a church in South Carolina. That's the buckle of the Bible Belt. And there's a cultural issue. People assume that just because they go to church that they're believers in Jesus. People who show up Christmas and Easter. There's an assumption there, and the list goes on. Next week, we're going to really dig into the very last parable that Jesus says on that day. Many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We healed the sick in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Those are words you do not want to hear Jesus say to you. So back into the story, in desperation, the only thing they can think of is to beg for help from their friends. So they say this in Matthew 25, verse 8, give us some of your oil. Here's a biblical principle, church. Preparedness for eternal life with Jesus cannot be transferred You cannot ride the coattails of someone else into heaven. You can't share it with someone else. Yes, you can share faith in Jesus, but a relationship with Jesus requires a personal relationship. Let me help you develop that thought. Maybe this is new information to some of you. Verse 9 says this, but the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealer and buy some for yourselves. The original language construction here is an emphatic negative in the Greek language, and it sounds like this. No, absolutely not. Get your own. Now, this is not Jesus teaching us how to be selfish, by the way. What what he's doing here is Jesus is emphasizing the impossibility of borrowing someone else's faith. Moms and dads, you can't make your children a believer in Jesus but you need to be responsible in making sure they understand what your faith is. Jesus is teaching the impossibility of borrowing the power of the Holy Spirit. And the foolish are thinking at this point, we can get the power from them to light our lamps. I just need to borrow it. Have you ever had someone say to you, hey, uh, would you just, uh, you're you're good with God, right? Would Would you put in a good word with me, for me, with the man upstairs? People do that to me pretty regularly. I don't know about you. Would you you just put in a good word for me? 
Well, I'd be happy and honored to pray with you. And, and any brother and sister in Christ in this church would be honored to pray with an individual who needs prayer. But your relationship with God, your standing before God is your responsibility. So in this case, in the story, the prudent are absolutely helpless to provide oil for their friends. Why? Because it's necessary that each one obtain their own. Parents, it's critical that your children have a faith of their own, one that they own, not yours. Yes, your legacy handed down to them, but likewise, you can't ride someone else's coattails into heaven, just as we can't transfer our physical life to another person. We can't transfer our spiritual life to another person. This is what Jesus is really driving at. Watch what they say, verse 9, there will not be enough for us and you too. It's saying, we can't have a faith for you. We can't give you obedience in God. If you neglect that, we can't create it for you. We can model it. We can't create it for you. Here's, here's the scary component of this. When God calls each person before his judgment seat... All the saints in heaven will not be able to intercede on your behalf, Moses and Peter included. We stand before God alone in the blood of Jesus Christ. After this life on earth, there is no negotiating. There's no second chance. There's no purgatory. There's no purchasing. It's you and Jesus. Do you have a relationship with Jesus this morning? This is what he's driving ahead. This is just days before his death. So how do I understand this statement that he's making here in verse 9? Look at this on the screen. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Well, you'll very quickly assemble this thought in your mind because if you've been through the parables over the last 14 months, you know exactly where this is going. He used the exact same illustration when he was talking about the treasure that was found in the field or the pearl of great price. You might remember that. We looked at that back in the spring of last year. In other words, an individual who takes all that they have, all that they are, because that pearl is so precious, they trade everything they have for the one thing they don't have. This is the illustration that he's using when he says, buy, but you can't trade it, you can't negotiate it. It's talking about the utter surrender of all that we are to be given that one thing that we don't have. This is heavy on Paul's heart, and he wrote to the church. You might remember this in Romans when we looked at this. Romans chapter 9, Paul said in this statement, I would be willing to go to hell for the people of my country if they would but recognize Jesus. He says it this way, I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Paul is that passionate about people not going to hell, saying, I would go to hell on their behalf, but it's impossible. I can't do it for them. You cannot enter the kingdom of God apart from a personal acceptance of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And Jesus said it best. Look at the statement in John 3, 3, and say amen afterwards if you agree with it. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Amen. That's the truth of God's word. Unless that one personally has a relationship with God, it cannot hope to see the kingdom of God. But 
Here's another reason to say amen. It's the second component of that, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, though, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's a great truth of Scripture, too. If you got Jesus, your sins have been wiped out, and you don't have to worry about those sins from here to eternity. Do you need to adjust your life accordingly? Yes. But Jesus says, I'll take your sins as far as the east is from the west and separate them from you and remember them no more so that one day you don't stand before him as judge, you stand before him as savior. How fantastic is that? Here's the problem in our culture today, and I think it goes all the way back to the first century. It's 2,000 years old. Individuals may really like Jesus. They might admire his intellect. They might really enjoy fellowship in a church and enjoy being part of church life. And they may look prepared to the degree that they have their own torches. But if they don't have the oil, if the oil isn't there, the eternal life cannot be transferred. They have to have that personal relationship. Verse 10, and while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. This makes me think of Jesus telling us three weeks ago about Noah entering the ark church. God shut the door of the ark. God sealed it shut. Those who entered into the ark are safe. Those on the outside are pounding, let us in! At the moment's passed, and we get the exact same imagery here. The door is shut, and the great tragedy is there's no more opportunity to get what they need. That's why Jesus deliberately placed this story at the midnight hour, because the oil shops are not open. The time to get the oil had long since passed. There's no opportunity to get what they need. It's not going to happen. Once the groom arrives, the door is shut. Verse 11. Later, the other virgins, we're talking about the foolish virgins here, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. I save this last Greek word for the very end so you feel the intensity of it. The word foolish, you see it in your notes this morning, is the word morose. It's where we get the English word moron from. In another setting, humorously, people use the word moron as a joke. And it's, it's a funny word at times. It's not funny here. When it's talking about being stupid, it's not talking about being intellectually stupid. It's talking about being spiritually stupid. That's why it goes on to say in the definition, as if shut up or heedless. They've shut their mind to the truth. And here's where Jesus is going with this. This is very subtle. They beg the groom. Did you notice that in the story? They're not begging the bride. They're not begging the father of the bride. They're not begging the groomsman. They go to the groom. Lord, let us in. Why? Well, because they recognize the groom is the one they offended. They're supposed to be ready for his big celebration, and they're not ready. So Jesus uses this word very intentionally, morose, and they beg the groom because he's the one that they offended. And although they desperately want to be inside the celebration, 
their life has displayed zero preparation. Therefore, they had no respect for the groom. And because the groom is disrespected, they demonstrated their unworthiness by being morose. Jesus can see that in their heart. They were posers. So this lack of preparation in this life, being absolutely heedless, reveals a total lack of respect for Jesus. And you ignore the groom in this life, and you will not see him in the next life. And the reason for that is because what you believe about God determines what you do. You've heard that a lot here at New Hope. What you believe about God determines what you do, and that applies to every quadrant of life. You go ahead and check it out. Apply it yourself. I would go one step further and say what you believe about God determines what you do next. What you believe about Jesus determines what you're going to do with this information this morning. What you believe about Him is the key to eternity. And so you and I have to step back and I have to ask myself this question included. Are the actions of my life, are they consistent with what I claim is true of me? Especially my secret actions, the ones that no one else sees, the things that I do in the background. Are those things true of what I claim publicly? These five bridesmaids fail and yet Shockingly, they still hope to be included, and so they're pounding on the door. Lord, Lord, open up for us. But the groom has made this decisive ruling, and his determination is way different than theirs. Their determination is they can get in if they pound hard enough. But this is what he says in verse 12. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. See, the failure on their part has severed any possible future relationship. The moment has come, the line has been drawn in the sand, and they can't enter the kingdom. And so he says, I do not know you, and it's an echo of what we just said in Matthew chapter 7. Lord, we cast out demons in your name. Depart from me, I never knew you. We'll, we'll dig into that next week. Here's the scary thing to me, besides all the things we've just talked about. These five foolish virgins have managed to move through life fooling everyone. They've managed to acquire the same props, got all the right equipment, but the character has been exposed, and Jesus has revealed they never actually belonged. And here's how I link Isaiah chapter 6 with where Jesus is at on the Mount of Olives. Jesus talking to His disciples, Jesus on earth. God condescending to become man is the same one who sits on the throne and says, depart from me. I never knew you. It's not Savior Jesus, that's judgment Jesus. And I know it moved him to great tears to have to deliver this information because there is sheer terror to look into the face of a holy God to whom the angels say, holy, 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 and all of heaven quakes as a result of it. And to look into the face of God and realize you can't get in. And not because you're not good enough or not smart enough, but because you didn't take him seriously. 
So that's why Jesus ends with this statement in verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. I've told you over the last four weeks as we've been walking through these end times things, when Jesus says be on the alert, He's talking about watching. Watching is the equivalent of readiness. Readiness is the equivalent of salvation. He's talking about being spiritually ready, being spiritually alert so that you never have to hear, I never knew you. I don't know about you, but I know that's the last thing I would ever want to hear Jesus say. To be part of the church and to have the lamp and have religion and have the form and the function and to be committed religiously and socially and intellectually, but not actually belong to God? Did you know that Paul said that's a trademark of the last days, even inside the church? He wrote to Timothy about the last days. This is what I'm going to close with, and I want, I want you to see this and drink this in. Watch this. 2 Timothy 3.1, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here's the church, verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they denied its power. New Hope, he's, he's writing about posers. Imagine having a form of godliness but taking no care whatsoever for what's inside while all your friends assume that's real faith. That guy's really sold out. He, he really owns it. They're thinking it's real. But in the end, it's a torch with no oil. And now that one has to face the one who can see everything. I promise you that telling people they're not going to heaven was not a popular message in Jesus' day. And it's no different today. It's not popular today. But I know why Jesus tells this just two days before the crucifixion. It's because he knows it would become pervasive within the church. He knows that it would be an identifier of individuals who would think they're good with God because they've just associated with the church. Obviously, it's pervasive. Or he wouldn't have spent hours just before his death telling this. Here's what I know to be true. The wedding invitations have gone out. He wants everybody to be at the banquet. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance and that we would all be part of this huge feast. And he's fixed a day that he will call us. He wants you at the banquet. So if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus and received that invitation and responded, maybe today is your day. I'm going to encourage you to respond. I would beg with you to respond knowing what it means to not give your life to Jesus. If you want to pray with someone about that after the service, you want to talk to someone, I'll be here at the front of the stage. I'd love to meet you if you're new to New Hope, by the way. Or if you want somebody to pray with, go over to the prayer room and you'll find Pastor Kyle and Pastor Michael over there. 
part of the staff here at the church. They would be thrilled and honored to pray with you. That's if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus. They would love to talk to you. I would encourage you, if you are talking with someone in your life who needs to hear these things, these are free. These are out on the information table. It's called How to Become a Christian. Take one of those with you and talk to your friend who doesn't know Christ. Show them what it means to become a believer in Jesus. Let me talk to you if you're a believer this morning, and I think that's by far the vast majority of us that are gathered here. If you've already put your faith in Jesus, what is your role right now? What are you supposed to be doing? Well, for sure, check yourself. Paul wrote that to believers. Check yourself. Examine yourself. Are you producing fruit? Are you pressing on towards the high calling in Christ Jesus? If not, you've got to check yourself and say, is this thing legitimate in me? I'm not asking you to question whether or not you're really saved. You know if you're a believer. But examine yourself. Are you producing fruit? Are you growing in your faith? And we don't do that to make ourselves more saved, but because we are saved. Amen? But because we are. So I'm going to pray in light of that. You have heard the information. You decide what to do with it. I'm going to ask God to bless this time that we spent together. Would you join me in that? Father, I pray, first of all, that your blessing would be on each and every individual who's been part of the service today. At the same time, some individuals might even be doubting right now whether or not they're really even saved. God, I ask that you would come around them with the power of the Holy Spirit to encourage them. They know in their heart, Father, and it might require just you prompting and showing evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. Father, for those who don't yet know you or are wondering if they ever made a commitment that was genuine, God, I pray that you would surround them with your loving arms. Eternity hangs on this issue, God. So I pray, Father, I desperately beg that you would draw into relationship with yourself those who may not yet be in relationship with you. Open their eyes, Father. Peel away the blindness. Take the scales away. Father, for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are already believers and profess you as their Lord and Savior, I pray, Father, that you would use this to motivate us to action on your behalf, to represent your kingdom well this week, to walk worthy of the name of Jesus. We pray for this in the matchless name of our groom who is coming for his bride, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.